evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out tonight, including our visitors from Boston. And thank you for our virtual audience for watching us. This is an historic occasion in that we have two authors here from Pensler Publishers, our old friend, <laughs> a better friend, our longtime friend. Is that kinder? Our longtime friend, Thomas Perry, who, gosh, how long have we been together now? I don't know. I think about 25 years or so. Probably more. Like that more. Yep. Yeah. I don't know. After about 25, it's, you know. Sort of blurs. Kinda, right. Yeah. So Tom came on the mystery scene with a real vengeance um, from Hollywood and wrote a fabulous book called Sleeping Dogs, right? Which then went on. I do have the right dog, right? Um, you're asking about the first book? First book was The Butcher's Boy. The Butcher's Boy. Yeah. The reason I said Sleeping Dog was because I reordered it today. Oh, <laughs> it stuck well, in my good. head. Well, that's right. the second. The that second. was the sequel. Right. So The Butcher's sequel. Boy, which won the Edgar and various other plaudits. Tom is also the winner of the Hammett Award, which I thought was very distinguished. <laughs> wow. Well, it is. It's named after Dashiell Hammett. It's an international award, so and it's done by a panel of judges. I always think in many ways it's the most prestigious of the mystery awards because it's not a popularity contest and it's not awarded by anybody you actually know. It's by people who read your book, right? Well, um, you know, it's it's nice to have, you know, any kind of positive news that uh, arrives in your in your little closed world while you're writing, um, but that's probably it's probably not as good for you as having somebody write a a review that's actually critical. <laughs> you know, it, uh, you really don't want to be convinced that you're you're already that you're wonderful, really good, that you're wonderful and. You know, you don't right. make mistakes or something. So like ego that. can get in the way of actual craft. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, something like that. Right. right. Tom is also the author of The Old Man, which is a TV series. Yeah, we can talk about that because it had various ups and downs on its way to production, didn't oh, it? Actually, why don't we talk about it now and then I'll introduce Josh because the star was really a great part of the difficulty in getting it to the screen. Well, um, in a way, he was he was both. That is, he was the reason it went to the screen and the, the reason why we were worried for so long. It was Jeff Bridges is, the, is one of the stars. He's the sort of main star. And John Lithgow and um, Amy Brenneman are the other sort of principal characters in the, um, in the series, which is on FX Hulu. I don't know what it's going to be on this year. I don't know. Maybe Disney will buy another network or something and put it on or <laughs> maybe they'll go maybe, I don't know if he's growing or he's if he's not but anyway but um what happened is you know Jeff Bridges was cast in the role and um they were shooting the series and at a certain point um you know I have to say sort of interrupt myself in this that that when Jeff Bridges started in the series I I went and and onto the set to see what you know Sort of watch him work for a day and introduce myself and all that stuff and you know he was just wonderful just great i watched what he was doing with this a scene that i had written and and i really thought you know he gets it he absolutely gets it and then you know after he had done it a couple of times he you know he said i want to do it one more time and he was doing you know in other words this is a real workman and then the last thing that i heard as he was working uh and i i think it was well it was actually in part of the first ep episode but it was shot about four weeks in and um he had i was told um there's a very long difficult athletic fight scene that occurs in the first episode and it's you know basically an elderly man fighting a younger man for a knife or you know essentially trying each of them trying to kill the other and he did a lot of it himself, although he is a you know great uh, stunt man and so on. And I was told that uh, you know they had shot it in the desert and uh, at night, and supposedly uh, he refused to go home. You know, even when it was like two o'clock when they finished shooting, he refused to go home before anybody else, before everybody else could go home. Which, if you've ever worked in television. Um, that's not the usual star behavior. <laughs> anyway, I mean, you know, he won everybody over, and partly because of the the way he uh, behaved, everybody else 
you know, I went on to the set, and I can tell you it was a happy set. There's a, you know, an unhappy set is a really, is really something to behold. Uh, but right after that, he had went to the doctor for a normal checkup, and they discovered he had lymphoma. And, um, you know, it, it was a, a sort of a bad progressed case and so on. They were very worried about him, and, and but they took care of him, and he got better. And But the problem was that while he was getting better from that, he got COVID because he had no immune, you know, <laughs> so you're, you're, you're taking chemo, right, and you are vulnerable to anything. So we all waited for, I don't know, maybe six months or so, just worried, 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 not really at this point because of whether this, the show would go on or not, but this is, this is such a wonderful man and, and such a great actor. And, you know, we've seen him in a million things and the thought that he was, you know, going to die of this was, was uh, horrible. And then wonder of wonders, he, you know, came through and was completely cured and, you know, for now at least. Uh, and uh, they shot the rest of the first season, and it was picked up for this coming season. So it'll probably be on again in June. So it's been fun. It's, it's a fun thing for me to watch, watch somebody. And also because, you know, writers are, are always um, complaining about how uh, the changes that somebody makes in their, you know, masterpiece and all that. And actually, for me, it was sort of interesting to see what it inspired in the in the people who wrote the screenplays, um, you know, it, uh, I actually found myself watching this thing. It was based on one of my books, and and wondering what was going to happen next, <laughs> <laughs> which I actually really enjoyed. It was fun. It was just it's been a fun trip. Well, you had you know kind of a different perspective since you wrote for Hollywood before you became a full time crime writer. So you know it was I suspect that contributed to um, your reactions to the whole thing? Oh, I'm sure it did. I mean, the, the, the two guys who wrote all of the, the, the scripts are uh, John Steinberg and uh, Robert Levine, who were um, the writers and executive producers of uh, what was called the Black, Sa Black Sails or something. It was the, the pirate thing that was shot in, in uh, South Africa. It was a, a successful series for about four years. And, you know, it was, they were pretty, I, I was very pleased with what they did, so. Well, I'm really yeah. glad to hear that, because when Tom and I had lunch a couple of years ago, it wasn't at all clear that Jeff Bridges was going to return and that the whole thing would actually happen, so yeah, it's nice to have a happy ending. Well, yeah. who is this gentleman you want to know? And the answer is, his name is, let me see if I can pronounce it right, J.S.H. Gortner. I knew I couldn't do it. All right, very good. But he's here tonight in a dual personality because he's also here as Josh Haven and his first crime novel right there. Um, <laughs> but we knew him before he wrote his first crime novel with these two wonderful books. What am I going to call you? Just J.H. and then I can finesse the pronunciation? Oh, just well. Call me Josh. Josh. I'll call him Josh. Anyway, Holdfast and Captain Gray's Gambits are absolutely fabulous books. If you are fond of Patrick O'Brien, if you read Bernard Cornwell, if you like books like that, they are just superb. And the chess element, for any of you who watched The Queen's Gambit, really plays into the second book, Captain Gray's Gambit. Yeah, I, uh, I wrote that. I <laughs> no, you're yeah. Sorry, it's my, my first time doing this. It's nice to know it'll be documented for eternity but uh, <laughs> i've been sitting up Don't here trying not to the chair um i i wrote uh i wrote that uh, captain gray's gambit before the queen's gambit came out uh and it was just titled gambit and i said okay we have to change the title now to captain gray's gambit which was just you know it's, it's a nice title gambit would have been better but i'm still mad at that tv show for for you know beating me to the post with chess I, I thought I'd invented writing about chess, of course. So it was well, you should be really grateful for the TV show because lots of people who watch it will be more inclined to read your books. So yeah. they well, kind of I'll did marketing for you. Cool. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about Hold Fast and Captain Gray's Gambit before we talk about your mystery novel because Hold Fast has some really wonderful naval action scenes. I thought they were terrific. Uh, well, I'd been reading a lot of Patrick O'Brien, uh, who I love. 
and uh, I was uh, I was driving back from the beach uh, with my then girlfriend, and we stopped at a uh, at like a, a bric-a-brac sale, a garage sale, and there was a copy of Goldfinger on sale, uh, the novel, and I thought, boy, it would be great if someone wrote one of these. Like we've got we've got Bernard Cornwell for the army, and we've got Patrick O'Brien for the navy. Who's doing the uh, the spy version of the Napoleonic Wars? And it turned out no one was, so I wrote that, uh, and that everything sort of unfolded from there. That's they're really exciting. I love adventures like that, but it's they true. also they're fantastic. They're yeah, no, they really are. Yeah, <laughs> I'm saying it. You can say it. It's all good. Um, and it's an exciting time too. Um, and I remind us as we're sitting here wondering what's going to happen in the war in the Ukraine. The war that he's writing about went on for 20 years, and nobody knew how it was going to come out until the Battle of Waterloo. So we are in June of 1815 before we actually know what happened, who was going to win. And the communications were so bad as such that even though Wellington had won, the news didn't really get reliably to London for a while after that. So that's a long time to live through a conflict like that. But what good news for you? Yeah, well, actually, it was Patrick O'Brien said that if he had known the series was going to be successful, he would have taken a little slower moving through the war because, you know, the first book is 1800. Well, actually, it starts in 1799 and then right. jumps to 1803 and then to 1814. So I was not going to make that mistake. My my editor is, for that was Star Lawrence, who was Patrick O'Brien's editor, and he was uh, wanted to make sure that I took this year by year so I wouldn't run out of books too quickly. Excellent. I'm glad to hear that. And one of the things that happens is there's so some... Arthur Wellesley shows up in the book, and actually, Arthur Wellesley is from my right. It's an Irish family. Uh, yeah, he was he was born in Ireland. He he liked to point out to people that he wasn't actually Irish, which I guess at that time British and Irish. Well, he uh, apparently what he said to people was being born in a in a stall doesn't make you a horse. So that's <laughs> what he told people when they said I he was born in Ireland. But you know, he uh, yeah, he was born right. In so he was actually stationed in India before he became Wellington and fought in what the Peninsula Wars in Portugal, and then eventually became the commander-in-chief at Waterloo and eventually became the Duke of Wellington. So it's really cool to see him back before anybody knew him. I love that. All right, so Tom, um, let's talk about Murder Book. You're back in the Midwest. What is it about small towns in the Midwest that, you know, you're either in L.A. or often in the Midwest or in upstate New York? Well... I was brought up, born and brought up in a town called Tonawanda, New York, city of Tonawanda, not North Tonawanda, nor the town of Tonawanda, but the city of Tonawanda had 12,000 people. And so uh, small towns are kind of, uh, let's say, a familiar habitat. So I kind of know how they work. I know how it feels to live in smaller places. and. Um, I kind of miss them sometimes, even if I have to invent them. Uh, everything, <laughs> the uh, small town that uh, that's in Murder Book, which is uh, called Parkman's Elbow, is um, entirely a product of my imagination. As is the Ash River, that uh, that runs along it, um, and really much of what's of what goes on. <laughs> In this this small town area is is essentially a um, a made up place, but um, sorry to hear that. It seems so pleasant. Yeah, well, I mean, aside know, from the criminals, but yeah, right. Well, you know, I mean, it's there's certain things that uh, you know, if you live on the planet, you sort of know how the planet works or something. You know, you know how the grass grows and what birds are likely to live along the river and things of that sort. But um, anyway, this is a situation in which a guy named um, Harry Duncan, who was a former cop, former LAPD guy, uh, who was trained there and then went on at various times to work in other police forces in different parts of the country, um, is suddenly, well, he's, he's uh, working now as a private investigator and so, who sort of trades off of his experience by being often um, hired by public entities to consult on things having to do with organized crime because he spent an awful lot of, of time uh, learning about it and um, 
so now he consults and he gets his latest client and his latest client uh, turns out to be the U.S. attorney for the Southern District, I'm sorry, the Northern District of Illinois, uh, who saw his name on a list of uh, reputable consultants on organized crime and realized that she, that he was the husband that she had walked out on 15 years earlier. And she doesn't expect him to, to uh, be very affectionate to her or to particularly be glad to see her, but she knows that he has all of the qualities. She knows, in other words, he knows her and she knows him and they each know that they can be trusted and she knows that if you're looking for a situation where you need somebody who is truly an expert and who is truly fearless and is likely to be reliable in a terrible situation, this is your guy. So she manages through uh, brute force and uh, ingenuity to talk him into taking a, a sort of tentative look at this area of uh, the Midwest in which suddenly um, career criminals from the Chicago area are suddenly turning up in these little towns in the in the Midwest, and that what she's afraid of is that it might be the the kind of the birth of a new organized crime syndicate. Because what are these guys doing <laughs> in this small place? And so, what he's hired to do is to go as an expert, go into the, these little towns and take a look and see what see if there are any signs that something is amiss, that something's happening that really ought to be uh, the subject of a full-on FBI investigation. And she's, for various um, almost political reasons, um, in a situation where she doesn't want to go, um, let's say, go propose such a thing unless she has some real evidence that something's happening that really has to be uh, looked at. And so he's the one to go and uh, find out what's happening. And the, the title murder book has to do with um, what he does when he collects evidence. He's, he's a trained uh, police officer for many years and he does what, <coughs> what he was trained to do, which is that if there's a homicide, for instance, um, what they do is, is make what they call a murder book. They call it that to each other. It isn't the official name, but it's, you know, what homicide detectives call it. They collect all of the evidence, all of the things that they've looked at, all the people that they've interviewed, all the photographs they've taken, all the measure measurements, what, you know, what's the weapon, what's, and so on, and collect it in a, you know, notebook. And it, the notebooks tend to grow <laughs> grow until you know they've got everything that they they can but what this murder book is what happens you can hand that off that is if you retire and you haven't solved this case somebody else is going to have that evidence and all the work you did all of the you know evidence and so on is going to be in there and that's what he does when he collects information he puts it in the murder book because that's what he knows how to do Oh. I've always thought that if Tom hadn't become a writer, he'd make an excellent career criminal because <laughs> he, he really has a, a mind that sort of gravitates naturally to fraud. And, and, and I've, I've often thought that the reason that you like small towns is you can take a macro thing like a potential organized crime syndicate and by putting it in a micro situation, you can see it a lot better than if you were like doing this in greater Los Angeles or something. Yeah, I mean, that, that's... I mean, you totally like that true. stage, don't Especially you? Especially the fraud part. It's just, yeah. Uh, Years ago, Tom <laughs> wrote a book about insurance fraud in a very small town. That was one of the best. I don't. I, it's not really a heist novel. I'm trying to remember. Well, well, Josh, what would you call it? That kind of. If you if you were going to send somebody to commit insurance fraud somewhere, you know what? What I'm trying to figure out. It's not uh, a heist a, a exactly. Crime thriller. 
No, well, that's boring. No, 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 no. <laughs> insurance. Though. Well, no, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm looking for fraud because not all, not all crime novels have to have murders in them, you know. You know, actually, I just this gives me an opportunity. I really love the yeah. the way you use the insurance uh, companies in in your book in the, the new one. Uh, no. Everyone's writing about insurance these days. Yeah, yeah. well, it makes for a quick turn. I really enjoyed yeah. learning about the uh, the financial details of how to pull off a protection racket. Oh, in yeah, your book. Well. <laughs> this is, you know, it's a good fallback in case the books don't work out. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, you know. You have to get together with a certain number of ominous-looking friends. You know, that's a, well, yeah, and it's you know not wanting to put the the bar out of business <laughs> until you've collected a decent amount of protection money first. It's you know very well thought through. It's uh, you know this uh, should they should hand these out to people in high school in case they don't get into college and you know want a, an alternative. That's not a knock on not going to college, by the way. College is the worst, but it's uh, yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> also, like the Sandhill Crane stuff that uh. Sorry, I, I don't want to. I don't want to spoil anything. But the uh, the bird stuff was uh, was uh, was a nice. Tom Tom loves process. That's the other thing that I've always enjoyed about his books is he really likes to develop process. The Jane Whitefield novels, for example, you're always so interested in building up, you know, the whole escape route, the whole techniques that she uses. Um, you know, you get so involved in them. It's really fun. Oh, good. That's uh, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad people like them. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I've always felt really that um, <clears throat> probably the best way to kind of understand reality is through these minute details because that's what reality is made of, right? It's it's uh, you know, gigantic things don't just happen there made up of all, I don't know, experiences are made up of all kinds of things and, and so on. And I, in recent years, I've decided that probably the reason I get hooked on those things is just that I've always had terrible eyesight. So I can't see the big picture. I go look at the, <laughs> I go see the, the joke know. from Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Josh, how did you migrate from Patrick O'Brien into the world of crime fiction? Because this book has had the most wonderful reviews. It's really fast action, acting. There's lots of dark things going on. So what got you interested in writing crime? Uh, well, a, a few things. Um, the uh, This was supposed to be like the uh, the big seller, you know, for a less niche audience. Everyone loves murder and death, you know. Not that many people love the Napoleonic Wars. <laughs> At least not as many as should. But uh, also, I, uh, I had finished... I'm just, I'm a compulsive worker. I needed something new to work on. And I, uh, Norton signed me for, for three of these uh, Napoleonic War books, and I finished them all before the first one was published. So I needed to start on something new, and my agent told me I couldn't write another one <laughs> until I had written something else. So, uh, so that's why I wrote this. Uh, you know, just uh, wanted to, you know, my two great reading loves are historical fiction and crime fiction. So I'd done one, so I figured it was time to do the other one. Oh, it's right. a really interesting. Well, why don't you why don't you give us the pitch for the book, and then we can talk about it, or Tom can talk to you about it because he's read it. So, want to set it up for? Us? Uh, well, I figured there weren't enough good contemporary books about contemporary horseback train robberies, and uh, it was it was a hole in the market that needed to be plugged immediately. <laughs> and so that was that was the basis of this book. And also, I uh, a while ago I was I was on a train coming uh, out of New York City, going uh, you know Metro North North to New Haven. And I was reading a collection of uh, old New Yorker pieces, and one of them was about uh, counterfeiting. Uh, I think it was by Sinclair McElway. And, uh, and I was just reading through it, and it turned out the first man convicted of counterfeiting in North America at Plymouth Plantation was uh, my great uncle, uh, named uh, Peregrine White. It's an unusual name, which is why I happened to recognize it when I saw it. So I figured this counterfeiting thing clearly running in my blood. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was on a train, I was thinking about horse, you know, when you can't get on a train without thinking about someone potentially robbing it on horseback. And between that and the counterfeiting, that was... many the, Westerns. Yeah, well, you know, that's crazy. This is my first time out in Arizona, and they look exactly like Westerns. You've got the, ca the cactuses I always sort of half-imagined were fictional, because they're such absurd-looking plants, but uh, seeing them in person for the first time has been a real, a real treat.
They're all over the place. Guess what? The thorns are real too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So that was that was the the genesis of the book. I wanted to write something about counterfeiting, and I wanted to work in a train robbery. Uh, also, I was very irritated with Amtrak. I was trying to to, to travel across <laughs> the country, and uh, the yeah the the Amtrak proposed schedule on their website was going to take forty two days, uh, which just seemed slightly impractical because I needed to be there, and you know slightly less time than that uh and so figured robbing an amtrak train was was justice <laughs> well, right, so you found a way to um make counterfeiting pay without going to jail by turning it into a book right yeah well the, for now i've sort of i'm keeping the rest of the counterfeiting game in my hip pocket just in case i need another profession that is in case the books and the uh protection racket don't work out and i have to fall back on counterfeiting yeah, it's a nice match. Yeah, yeah. So Tom, you read you read his book. You should you should really yeah. be talking to him because you're the pro here. Well, um, you know, just one thing that I well, let's say a couple of things. You know, I I liked your okay. Um, I think it's it's uh, Raymond Chandler, wasn't it? Who said. He liked Hammett because he put murder, he gave murder back to the kind of people who commit murders. You know, it's not like you know people in the British country house and you know I have you all together and don't try to leave the room. And, <laughs> you know, you could have done it. You could have done it, you know that sort of thing. It's thugs. It's people that that really want to hurt you. They are bad people. You know, it's like people. It's sort of become fashionable to complain about police if you don't like police spend some time with criminals sometimes <laughs> you know get to know a few you know see what they think what they say and these are people that feel real they really do and it's it, you know they come <laughs> uh it, it's uh that's terrific um thank you it is i mean it's you know and and also her i can't remember her name now it's the the uh, counterfeiter, Kelly. I think Kelly. It's yeah. been a while since I've yeah, read it. Too, I know. So. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm not good with names. It's, uh, you know, I, I uh, it's it sounds ridiculous, but be, if a name sounds like it could be somebody's real name, I'll forget it. <laughs> you know, if it's if it's you know, Agamemnon Fus, I'll remember it. You know, but uh, anyway, you know, she feels real too. There's a, you know, essentially what happens is that. Um, a guy who was unjustly convicted of a crime was sent to uh, federal prison for a long time. And when he gets out, the person waiting for him is a former girlfriend, Kelly, who um, gives him a ride to her place and so on. Um, and he, she's basically getting him involved in her uh, incredible crime which uh i don't want to blow it or, or you know <laughs> reveal what it is but i mean it has to do with counterfeiting it has to do with her knowledge and love of art it has to do with uh the sort of old relationship that he had with her and with his ability to connect with the kind of people that you would recruit if you wanted to do a, a crime yeah, it's sort of the moral of the story is that if you go to college and get an art degree, then you're going to end up having to counterfeit professionally. That's true. Uh, yeah. There's so I thought what, one thing I thought was pretty interesting, and it, you know, I, it's come up before, but I mean, a huge amount of thought is what if you have been in prison for a long period of time and they let you out and there's nobody there? You know, there's your life has to restart, but how does it restart when, in fact, you know, there may be, you may be, disconnected from everything you knew before do you even have a ride you know from the prison to the nearest place do you have a job do you have a place to live do you have whatever do you even have you know do you just wear the clothes you came in with i mean if you've been in prison for a long time you know you've been wearing prison clothes right so what do they let you out with well not speaking from personal experience but uh i think they let you out with the stuff you went in with and uh, it is a good question uh 
you know, if your life has been completely destroyed, especially by a, a, a false conviction, and you're convicted for something you didn't do, and even if you get let out later, it doesn't really undo the time you spent in prison. Uh, so it has a pretty pretty deleterious effect on someone, I would think. Again, not speaking from personal experience. And I know they say, write about what you know, but it didn't seem worth it to go to prison for the uh, for verisimilitude. So. But I bring it up just to point out that it makes him vulnerable. You know, if he comes out and it's Kelly there, you know, he doesn't really have any other particularly good choices at that moment. And I, I wonder if that's one reason, you know, that there's a lot of recidivism is just because when you emerge, there's no really... Often, there's no great life choice available to you. I know they work a lot uh, in some prisons anyway about, you know, what you're going to do when you get out, some kind of rehabilitation or retraining or something. But what if you just stroll out and then there's only Kelly, which is sort of what happens here? Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a good question. I think they should probably teach more felons to write because there's a lot of good material in that. <laughs> and they'd have something to do when they got out of prison. But... Uh, so let's talk about Klimt, right? Gustav <laughs> Klimt, one of my... Have any of you... Did any of you see the movie Woman of Gold? Now, it's... I mean, he's a, a painting. He was in uh, Austria at the turn of the 20th century, and he painted some very rich people anyway. I don't know if they were famous, but one of them was a particular woman. And um, it's now it's now in New York City at the... Um, Trying to remember the name of the gallery. It's north uh, of the Neue Gallery. Yeah, thank you. The Neue Gallery, which is that Ronald Lauder, I think, uh, uh, finances yeah. it. Right, but it was uh, because the Nazis confiscated um, artwork from a particularly wealthy Jewish family in Vienna. This painting was one of the things that was confiscated, and the movie and the book are all about um, the effort of one of the heirs to reclaim the painting. Um, which eventually got sold to Ronald Lauder, but it was all part of that whole Nazi repatriation thing. But he's a he's a fabulous artist. There's gold all over her. Um, I've been to Vienna and actually seen the Clinton. Um, there's some wonderful. I'm trying to remember what the name of the big gallery. Do you remember Tom the big gallery in Vienna? That oh, it's oh, a very it's in a no. palace and it's very famous. And I'm going blank because oh. I'm old and I can't remember. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, well, I anyway, known right if you see if right after the movie, I would have known. Yeah, if you see a whole bunch of clumps together, it can be just blinding because yeah. of the shapes and the you know the use of the gold and the colors and everything. So, why Klimt? Uh, I've I've always really loved Klimt, and uh, he was a fantastic draftsman, which uh, sort of comes through in the paintings, but also because the the colors and design are such an emphasis, you don't fully appreciate you know the. Um, the naturalism of his of his drawings of people, which are really fantastic, but also I just I happened to be reading about Klimt at the time. Um, the uh, the Nazis confiscated a lot of his paintings, and they uh, when they were retreating from France, they destroyed a number of his paintings. Uh, I think some were were frescoes that they destroyed destroyed in in situ, and then others were paintings that they just burned. Uh, there are a few there are color photographs of some of them. There are black and white photographs of some of them, and some of them are just completely lost but uh i don't know it seemed appropriate since the guy in the in the book who's stealing the nazis are involved with the theft i don't want to give away too much of the plot but it seemed somehow appropriate but that would be a particularly interesting if you were going to try to do some kind of chicanery there if they're lost paintings but nobody knows entirely for sure that they're yeah, lost you know, or I, whatever i worked on a play about that years ago that uh it's it's never been staged in fact it probably i don't think i finished it it was about someone trying to, to counterfeit a Picasso, a, a lost Picasso, and then finding out that the period canvas he's working with uh, was not a, a cheap, trivial painting. It was actually another lost painting that he's now painted over. So he's got to get back the one he, the copy he sold so he can clean it off. But uh, I digress. No, that's good. No, that's okay. In case anyone wants a good idea for a novel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Any questions you'd like to ask? Hmm. I don't know. I'm not usually in the questioning side of this. <laughs> I, I have to think about it. Whether I. Uh, um, oh, you want to hear more of my views on cactuses? Well, you know, I mean, I I grew up in the East, and there were th when I first saw cactuses for real, I thought, you know, pretty amazing uh, sculpture. 
They, they're very friendly-looking uh, plants. You know, they got their arms up. They look, they, and you can never hug them because of the needles. It's really, it's the tragedy of cactus. Yeah, it's true. You're talking about the sparrow, right? So most of you get something that I write to you, and I think I sent you a picture. We decided this year to have Christmas lights professionally done. And so we did a tree in the house, but we did our giant saguaro, and it really is a giant saguaro. It's about 20 feet high. It took two guys and a bucket truck and 11 hours to wind the lights around the saguaro all the way up, and they came to take it down the other day, and it was two guys and a bucket truck trying not to get stabbed while they are <laughs> unwinding it. But it was absolutely magnificent. The light it just lit up the whole neighborhood. It was so much fun to do it and I asked them if we could keep it but they said the lights weren't hunt. they weren't licensed with these lights for year round there I don't know there's some I personally think it's because they want to come back and do it all over again <laughs> this year so I'm not too sure that I but anyway they denuded it and now I look at the cactus and it's not lit up and I think you know where'd it go it's so amazing it is oh, you just you've got to light it up for other occasions you know do it for Valentine's Day and then Day, so I'm going to get a bucket day. truck and go up there myself, right? Yeah. Now. But it really was an amazing thing um, to be doing, so I was very pleased with it. So anything you want to talk to Tom about since Tom was pondering? Uh, yeah, you know that they actually put microchips in some of those cactuses to prevent people from stealing them? <laughs> uh, should, yeah. I was curious about that. They turned out those, those saguaros are absurdly valuable. They're worth yeah. like several hundred thousand dollars, and people just go out into the desert and steal them, so they started microchipping them. How embarrassed would you be if cops came to your house and said, Sir, that is a stolen cactus, and we know it, and we're, we're, we're taking away your landscaper now. Yeah, yeah, uh, another plot coming up, yeah. right? Instead yeah, of your dog right. or your cat, they're going to take your... That's right. That's, those guys got a job out of prison, um, <laughs> which was working for this uh, for this light company. And, you know, was a... So let's talk about the women in your books, because, Tom, you have a really wonderful woman in the murder book. I like her a lot. Well, was... two, two really wonderful women. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's uh... true. We've talked about these, but we haven't talked about the woman that he encounters when he arrives in this small town. Oh, Renee. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, um, one of the things about uh, Murder Book is that, in a way, I'm kind of playing with things that you expect in a piece of fiction, and particularly crime fiction. And, and usually... You have this extremely tough guy and who is, you know, you can sort of tell kind of in the prime of life and a little bit maybe attractive, uh, comes into, you know, the stranger comes to town and he comes into this restaurant and this attractive woman about his age, which is, um, you know, they're both about 40 or so, and um, they start, you know, sort of, uh, flirting with each other and so on. And what you're expecting is that they're going to have some sort of an affair, some sort of a romance or something that's going to happen. No. Like instantly she realizes that she has no, that he doesn't appeal to her in the least. And, and is, uh, you know, tells him so. And, and just, you know, it's, it's, so Renee, Renee is probably attractive partly so that you think that this is what's going to happen and, and so no and instead what happens is that you know she goes out uh, to get him some food in the kitchen and comes back and says you know there's two guys fooling around with your car outside you know that's it and that's her function at that moment but um, that gets him started that is he you know when he goes out he realizes that these guys are, are getting ready to pull a sort of common scam on him, which is to pretend that they have some sort of relationship with the city and he doesn't have the right uh, license plate on or something of that sort. And so we're going to tow away your car. And if you, but you know, you could pay your fine as long as you do it before they get, you know, your car up on the, on the tow truck, you know, after that, you know, it's going to be really expensive. So, you know, maybe you could pay us right now, and then you won't, uh, you won't do that. So that's his introduction to the town. Makes him a little suspicious. <laughs> it's also, it's, it's very interesting that she's, uh, Renee is so, you know, she's so good looking and so charming. 
that he finds a little off-putting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I thought was an amusing touch. Instead of just being totally ensorcelled by her, yeah, like yeah, this 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 lady, she's just she's had it good her whole life, and it's uh, just a, a slightly irritating. Also, you know, he can sort of tell that she knows it, that she, you know, she knows the effect that she has on, you know, the first guy that comes by. I mean, you know, he wasn't born yesterday. That's why he's who he is. You know, he's he's a guy who has been around and who's been in quite a few jobs where, um, let's say, they involve differences of opinion. And so he has got <laughs> he's got a few scars and a few. <laughs> A few places where he got hurt and so on, but uh, she, uh, you know, she's in a way she's sort of fun, but but she's also she turns out later to be very important, you know, because, uh, you know, but not in that way. I mean, but uh, so um, let's just say that a lot of things happen in this little town that makes him believe that yes, she was right. There is something going on. There is some kind of a of an organization here, and it does seem to be involved in doing a lot of the things that he's familiar with that that gangs do. Um, so the question is why? The question right. is why. But, but you meant not Renee, but but his ex is the one that yeah. was right. Right. Yeah. Renee is. I think one of the things I like the best about Renee is her whole family history. You know, the restaurant that right. has been in her family for generations and, you know, she wants to right. keep it going. I'm not sure that, I think that has a lot of resonance in the small town. I think if you were in a big city or something, that would be, although oh, yeah. there certainly are 100-year-old, you know, institutions in major cities. But sure. But well, I really yeah. like that about her. The um, the town that I grew up in, there was, a, there was a bar called Jay's Log Cabin that was built in 1803, and it literally was. <laughs> Like you know, based on a log cabin, you know, and it was, uh, you know, in the house that I uh, was born, you know, we'll say that I came home from the hospital to when I was born, was uh, also built in 1803 and had uh, rough timbers. And in the, in the, if you go in the in the basement, you could see the, you know, what had been a tree is the is the beam holding the floor, you know, and the uh, and the, the uh, basement was based on um, mortared stones. So it was, you know, quite a, quite a thing that they tore down. But anyway, in, in, you know, in the East, things are old. That's all. It's just, um, For more about 1803, read either of these two books. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah. Like How is it about Kelly? Because, yeah. you know, she's a key player. Are there other women in your book? And what inspired Kelly? Did you actually know somebody like Kelly? Uh, I, yeah, I've known a few girls who are a little like Kelly. None of them, <laughs> none of them counterfeiters, but uh, a few who would probably have made good counterfeiters. Uh, I, you know, I, I knew a lot of girls in college. I went to college in the city in Manhattan <clears throat> uh, who are, you know, art students and very, uh, opinionated on the subject of art and knew a lot about art and uh, didn't really have any any plans for once they graduated. And once they did graduate, they sort of scattered out around the country finding jobs completely unrelated to art, which is, you know, sort of the situation. I, I got a degree in playwriting, which was, <laughs> well, it, it worked out kind of all right because I'm writing now, but uh, for a while it wasn't too productive. The day I, the day I got a call from my agent saying that he wanted to represent Hold Fast, I was uh, applying for uh, a commercial truck driving school. Wow! Uh, so um, that's sort of what you do when you when you go to school and get an art degree. And uh, but counterfeiting seemed like a, seemed like more fun. And uh, as a, as a, as a woman, she you know she had uh, her charm and sort of her her femme fatality. Uh, I don't know if that's the correct conjugation of that, but. Uh, <laughs> dealing with uh, dealing with the man, but also uh, just her her innate, intense uh, knowledge of art and her skill in in uh, in computing. And uh, she in the book she went to Georgia Tech, uh, which was it's sort of a joke that she goes to a, a top notch technical school to get an art degree. Uh, I knew someone who went to MIT and majored in French literature, which was actually <laughs> so. Uh, <clears throat> uh, yeah, I. I I don't really know uh, what else to say about her. She's uh, she's an interesting character. I didn't give her too much thought as a character qua 
female character, though people keep telling me I should, uh, the, these girls, partly the basis for Kelly were telling me I should have more female protagonists. Uh, so that was, that was part of it. Two of the people we've talked about in the book, but who are the rest of the gang? In your book? Uh, my book? Yeah, um, well, uh, there's, uh, there are three, uh, sheep farmers from, uh, Montana, who uh, sort of form the, the, the core of the gang that ends up robbing the Amtrak train. Uh, is that because they're good at riding horseback? Uh, it is, in <laughs> fact, because they're good at riding horseback. That was their, their principal reason for being chosen was because they were good at riding horseback. The, uh, the sheep stuff didn't end up playing too much into the crime. Uh, though. So what route, what route is Amtrak people. taking you in your book? Where where is it going from where to where? It's actually passing right through here, more or less, uh, which is uh, unplanned. And I had to do, I'd never been to this part of the country before, so I had to do all the research just by watching YouTube videos of people driving through the Southwest and, uh, you know, some old John Wayne movies, that sort of thing, your normal book research. Uh, well, with Amtrak, they're up in Flagstaff because, unfortunately, Amtrak doesn't come down here anymore. Mm -hmm. So it goes across. That's yeah. You know, another like forty-seven day journey was proposed to me by Amtrak to come out here because I couldn't get a direct flight. So I thought, well, it'd be nice to take a train. But uh, <laughs> so take a bus from Flagstaff <laughs> down to Phoenix. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, they wanted me to go from Florida up to Washington, and then from Washington to to New Orleans, and then from New Orleans to Chicago, and Chicago back to deep Texas or something. It was. When I was a child, my father was one of the people that put General Telephone together, and he used to commute from Chicago to Los Angeles, and you just got on the Super Chief, and it started in Chicago and went straight to Los Angeles. It was like three and a half days. Those days are gone. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, halcyon days. It would have been faster just to get a boat through the Panama Canal, frankly, than taking Amtrak, <laughs> which would have been a lot of fun, actually. But I can see that. Right. So you have another book coming out in June, another crime novel. So what <coughs> what is it about? Give us a preview. Um, uh, it's about uh, Russia in the 90s. Uh, I met a guy uh, a couple years ago. It was a couple years ago. Uh, yeah, it was about a, a year and a half, two years ago who had been a, a big player in Russia in the 90s. He was a, an investment banker, uh, businessman, and uh, he met a Czech guy who, was, uh, who made a killing in privatizing Czech state industries when communism ended. And uh, they had this idea to go to Russia together and buy up uh, stakes in extremely undervalued companies, which would then become very valuable after the sort of post-Soviet democracy settled in, if it did settle in. And uh, no one was really interested in this market because no one knew if the companies were going to even exist a few months down the line because of the, uh, the state of affairs in, uh, in Russia at the time. And uh, it was just, it was a, a crazy period. There were uh, murders left and right, of course. Not that much has changed in that particular regard. And uh, a lot of people involved in this book have subsequently been murdered actually because it was a true story i ended up writing this guy's more or less true story uh after meeting him several times and the the stories of several other people involved and the uh just the life in russia in the 90s was just very cinematic perfect for a movie perfect for a novel um very exciting stuff i just you know hearing these these stories one of the stories i made into the book i was talking to an actual Czech businessman who told me that he got invited onto a sort of mobster's boat um, to go fishing in the uh, in the Caspian Sea, and uh, they just they went out onto the water and he was waiting for them to pull out fishing poles and instead they put took out a a big uh, Soviet army box which had uh, machine guns in it. They said, "This is how we fish." Like, are we going to have a, a gunfight with other people on the Caspian Sea to like steal their sturgeon? They said, "No, no, it's it's much more civilized than that. We just we put out all of our guns, and they put out all of their guns, and whoever has more gets all the fish." Uh, and so that was that was their fishing, and that was just one of the one of many really fantastically crazy stories of things that happened in the uh, in the nineties in Russia. So that was the basic basis for the book. It's a true story with a with a lot of little true anecdotes like that salted in. Uh, basically, it's about the energy industry in Russia and uh, how it came to be owned by the people it's owned by now, how it went from sort of communism to a brief period of private ownership and then to the oligarchy that runs Russia now. So, uh, good stuff. I really can't recommend it enough. <laughs> Wait till June. Does it have a title? 
Uh, it's called the Siberia job. Or possibly Siberia job. I can't remember if there's a the. If the, if the is there. Yeah. You know, I had to look up your book. I don't remember how many times, Tom, to see if there was a the before a murder book. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was suggested, and I, you know. You liked it. Like I want to save that. I want to save it in the. Uh, Saving the the for future use? Yeah, yeah. You never know when you're when you're when you're Thomas Perry and someone tries to stick something onto the front of your book title, you've got the juice to say no. <laughs> Didn't work with no, me, but no, I just have an understanding <laughs> editor. That you know, <laughs> uh, you know, allows me to hang myself whenever I want to. Well, that's funny. My editor isn't understanding at all. Oh. We have the same editor. So. <laughs> yeah, well, Hi, well, Otto. Yeah. <laughs> so, Tom, um, I love the birds, and my final question for you is, why did you decide? I mean, I think they're absolutely wonderful, and they're a major part of this book, but what do you know about birds? Well, um, that seems like weird. If you haven't read the book, you don't really understand my no, question, okay. but trust me, the birds are really crucial. If you go online to the Cornell University Ornithology Department, you will actually be treated, if you want to be, to the sound of, of the calls of different birds, you know, to, so you can identify what these birds are. And um, this particular set of, of birds um, was distinctive enough and at the same time common enough that, that you know, what happens in the book could actually happen. I mean, because, it would, because you're so good at that. Oh, well, thank you. You know, working out. No, you. As I said earlier, you're really good on process, but you. You know, you really like how things work, and then applying them to your stories. I do, I do. I mean, it's you know that's part of the fun of reading. You know, is that we, you know, we can pick up all these little things and see what their implications are in certain contexts and so on. But this is a situation where um, it becomes a life and death matter for him to identify a place that he only hears on a phone call. And so what he's doing is picking up noises that are in the background of this phone call so that you can figure out where is a place within this region that has the combination of sounds that I'm hearing in this phone call. And he realized, you know, bird calls are one thing. And so, you know, he goes and, and tries to find out what, you know, what kind of bird this is and where it would be if it were, you know. And um, for some reason, I, well, anyway, I, I don't want to go too deep. Any more than that. Yeah, no, no, no. But I just, I thought it was extremely clever. I'm always impressed by Tom's craft, you know, trying to figure out all this stuff. I mean, in the Jane Whitefields over the years, I've learned a lot about how to make people disappear, how to track them over land, you know. Um, are you uh, speaking of Jane? Are you going to be writing another Jane anytime soon? Um, not immediately. I'm working on something else right now that, uh, you know, I'm at the point where I have enough um, marks on the page, enough pages, but it's uh, it's not ready to go yet. So I'm, you know, working on on trying to do the that all important uh, mea culpa thing where you fix the things that are wrong and try to to uh, overcome your sins to make the thing into a good book. <laughs> so, so that's the book for next year? That's the book for next year, yeah. This is where having an understanding and clever wife comes into play? Well, that we'll see. <laughs> you know, we'll see what works. What thing, what are the, are the many things that... that well, isn't Joe your first reader? Absolutely. Joe is, you know, as I said before, before we were being recorded, um, you know, marrying the right person is, is the, the closest thing on the planet to having a superpower that you have. You have another person who is, is uh, you know, in, in our case, she's smarter than I am and is, is uh, also has a PhD in English and is a fine novelist and poet and uh, writer, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sure that today the the people who run the Los Angeles Times are probably getting blisters from her latest letter that she wrote to the editor, <laughs> which appeared this morning. Um, <laughs> so she is also my old uh, my writing partner in television. When you know when we wrote 
television as partners for 11 years. And um, so she's my first reader. And, and uh, it, you know, it takes an incredible amount of courage to be able to say to the person that you live with um, that something's not working in their, in their novel that they're suffering through. So, you know, because we work together, we uh, are both, we both try to be as frank as possible. Civilized. Plus, Joe is an endless supply of toffee. Sometimes <laughs> she brings it over here. I don't know if she bribes you with toffee, but I can tell you I'm a sucker for it. <laughs> no, it's it's not toffee, Mr. That's not what, what uh, I respond to. <laughs> we won't go any further there. So, Josh, tell us about this the third Captain Gray, which I can hardly wait for, because that comes out in July and the other book comes out in June. So that's amazing that you're going to have two books back to back. Yeah, it's uh, it's an exciting time for me. Uh, it's uh, it's called the Montevideo Brief. It's uh, it's about the uh, the last gold armada that was shipped from uh, Spanish colonies in the New World to Spain, the old Spain, the old world. Uh, it was uh, intercepted by the British. Uh, damn, I mean, I've spoiled the end of the novel. It may be intercepted by the British. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, before it reaches port uh, in in Spain, um, and it was it was there was a real secret treaty between uh, Spain and France that Spain was going to enter the war on France's side uh, after this last shipment of gold made it safely to port. They didn't want to declare war sooner because then the British would capture their gold, and they needed the gold for their economy also to have money to fight the war. So it was uh, the British figured out that they they found out about this treaty, they found out about the shipment. And they figured that if they could intercept it, they could cut Spain off at the knees before the uh, before they they join the war on Napoleon's side, which which may or may not happen uh, in the book. I don't want to spoil the ending. <laughs> if you don't know your history, if you do know your history, you'll know that the British do successfully intercept it, but you'll you won't know why unless you read the book, which is again just it's a fantastic book. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's uh, I can hardly wait to read it. I love spy stories, and I've you know the fact that it is set in the Napoleonic era. There's a lot still going on today. One of the really interesting things I think about modern spy stories is because everything can be hacked, that spies have gone back to old technique. They're actually doing letter drops, you know, and meeting on benches and parks and passing things in newspapers and stuff because, you know, it's too easy for digit in a digital age for stuff to get intercepted. So. You're kind uh, of coming back into fashion. Yeah, it's uh, a a very close friend of mine uh, who is a doctor um, was actually recruited by the CIA out of college, and uh, one of the things they wanted to test him on was his handwriting, uh, and his handwriting was was terrible, and I think that actually kind of crippled his his future job prospects. So oh, everything man, has I'm to a be doctor. Yeah, <laughs> so that's why it worked out perfectly. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> <laughs> So, Hi, Patrick, do we have any questions from the viewing audience before we ask for the... Thank you. Also, thank you. Uh, it depends. Which book are we talking about? Ah, right. Um, huh. Yeah, I think that was the original ending. That was that's uh, I I don't want to want to give away too much because it's it's a really it's a fantastic twist, uh, you know you'll just you'll you'll all love it, uh, <laughs> but uh, it was it was the original ending and that was kind of what I was building for. Some of the stuff leading up to it got changed over time, but uh, that was the big finale that I was hoping for. It had Thank to be you. because you were you were doing the magician thing. Look at all this stuff going on over here. <laughs> Don't look at this. You know, look at this. Actually, a good question is, both for the kind of books you both write, do you know the ending when you start writing? Or uh, does it evolve as you're writing? Uh, usually I, I don't know the ending, but I know who's going to be standing up and who's not. That's about it. And how about you, Josh? Did you know what the uh, end was? Yeah, I, I know the ending. I know everything that's going to happen in the book before I start writing. And I don't like to, uh, I mean, not not every page, but I like yeah. to have everything plotted out pretty carefully before I get going. Yeah, I don't, because what happens with me is, you know, it takes about a year, right? And, um, or at least at my advanced age, it takes about a year. <laughs> and uh, I don't want to write a book 
which consists of the best idea I had on the first day. Okay. I want it to be the best idea I had in a year. You know, so I, I'm kind of open to changes all the way along, or I try to be. I try to, to not shut any doors, you know, or let's say not shut too many doors. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's why uh, you're best-selling author of the... <laughs> <laughs> and mine just says Josh Haven. Not immediately. Not immediately, but probably. I mean, what happens is if I don't uh, write about her for a while, people ask me about it. And um, then I sort of start thinking about how much I miss thinking about that world, you know, and, and her, and so on, so. When would you make your cameo appearance? Or Alfred Hitchcock, often. Uh, no. <laughs> well, have you considered doing a cameo in Reacher? <laughs> That would be good. I mean, you know, the, part of the problem is, I don't know if you've ever seen either John Lithgow or Jeff Bridges in person, but next to them, I look like a dwarf. <laughs> so, um, you know, probably, unless unless I'm lying down, like I'm dead, sort of, I guess a Hitchcock was dead in a couple of things, you know, he was the corpse. I, I would be the corpse, but I won't be anything else. So. Yes. Um, don't have any any plans at the moment. That's another thing that I learned over the years, that if I plan too far ahead, the biggest piece of fiction there is is it's the plan. <laughs> so by the time I get there, you know. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, there are actually a couple of Jack Till books, so, you know, but it's... Uh, um, one of those things where you, you sort of you get to a certain age and you realize okay how many more star stories am i going to have time to tell um, you know write down and if you go back uh, and do something you've already done or some something that's based on what you've already done um, that's one new idea that you aren't going to have time to write so i don't know we'll see <laughs> how about any of you in the room any of you have questions you'd like to ask Uh, the uh, the first one, the uh, Russia book, Siberia Job, is Josh Haven, and then the Montevideo brief is J.H. Glanger. And my my agent told me I couldn't have a third pseudonym. Uh, <laughs> you know that's that's sort of weird. You know well, they I, did I that thought with Donald Westlake too, because <laughs> supposedly, um, you know, he was writing so many books that he had he he each one uh, he <laughs> your publisher wants your next book always right your publisher wants that next book they don't want to have you also writing for another publisher but you know they don't necessarily have room to do all your books if you're very prolific and so in the case of Donald Westlake he had to write books under a false name to you know get them published so that uh, you know he wouldn't trip over himself and his publisher Barry Black did that too, Lawrence Black, and he yeah. actually wrote as a woman part of the time to really confound yeah. everybody. Yeah, it uh, only surfaced, re you know, <laughs> later in the game that he was writing because yeah. they were writing for the pulps essentially, writing for magazines, yeah. you know. Or with, do you remember what Larry Black's female pseudonym was? I can't recall. Jill Emerson. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, well, we were just, but Josh is sticking to just two. Well, it's, I, I've been reading a lot of uh, Lisa Jewell and Ruth Ware recently, and I thought it would be fun to write one of those, uh, sort of a, um, you know, female protagonist British mystery novel. And so I thought, yeah, so uh, my agent told me that it wasn't quite my, my, you know, 
my name recognition. So I, but I, I was, I was ahead of him. I thought I could use the pseudonym Sue Dunham, which would be hilarious. But then he told me that that was in fact not at all funny, and <laughs> and it would be a bad idea. So I, I've done that. It's a, actually, it's an interesting thought, though. I like the idea. Where Lisa Jewell, you could See? do it, Warren. Well, yeah, that was. Yeah, that, that, that's what I was going for. Yeah. But the, uh, the 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 humor is evidently not universal. <laughs> Anybody else have a question? Yes, sir. Do you use Patreon to make people interested? Because you know, that's true. You don't. You would get inspiration. You don't know about it. <laughs> Who's this Jerome guy? It's a, it's, oh, a, it's right. an old mining ghost town. I was thinking of Jerome Kern, but no, no, probably no. not him. Bisbee in one end and Jerome in another, and they're both very. Um, Bisbee's the copper, the copper queen, and the big copper mine. And Jerome, what did they mine in Jerome? Was it silver? What was Jerome? It was, copper. was it copper too? Yeah. Yeah. Plot gold. Yeah, no, that'd be great. Pure saguaro. <laughs> They're not so happy. If they really are, and it's amazing how many of them survived the fire, you know, because there was a devastating fire going up there, but most of the saguaro made it through. Um, they're really they're really tough. If you go to the botanical garden, they have one lying on its side so you can see the whole rib structure. And it's really a fascinating yeah. piece of engineering in the floral world. Yeah, the, 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 the idea of a plant having a skeleton, which is what these dead saguaro apparently have, is, is tremendous. That's how they do the water storage. See, the, the, the skeleton expands with water and then it can contract. And, you know, it's a... If we'd only been that clever working out any way to capture water now that we have a lot of it, but we didn't build any kind of system here in Phoenix. And apparently they didn't in California, Cashman system. But the saguaro was right there all along. Oh, well. Anyway, anybody else have a question they'd like to ask? No? You're all stunned by our eloquence? And Okay. Well, thank you very much for coming tonight. Let's give our authors a round of applause. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.